Well, a few years ago, some of us were doing pulpit supply for a church in Salina, Kansas, and this text was assigned to me. And at first blush, I was nervous. I mean, this was gonna be the first time I stood in front of this church. I didn't know the people. And I was gonna be up there communicating God's commands for roles and responsibilities in the home. You know, words like submit, obey, sacrificially love, addressing husbands and wives that I actually didn't know. And so I was nervous about that. The more I studied the text, though, it became compelling, very compelling, and not because of what it says about the roles of husband, wife, father, children, slave, and master, but because of why Christian households are to live in accordance with the commands in these verses. It's a compelling text when we see it in its context and we see the ultimate motivation that the Holy Spirit through the Apostle Paul provides for the commands that we know well. Commands for wives to submit to their husbands and for husbands to love their wives and for children to obey their parents. For slaves to subject themselves to their masters and for masters to deal with justice and equity. The why for those commands is compelling. I want to say at the outset, I'm going to say this a few times. This, it's easy to see these verses and think of this as a competing worldview. You just hear submission, sacrificial love, obedient children, and that smacks up against what our, our culture is throwing at us right now, right? And what's being exalted. And so we hear these verses and maybe the defenses immediately go up or maybe you're like, yeah, see, this is the way God wants it. It's not like them out there. It's not what they want, how they're saying we should do things. So we hear it almost as this competing worldview and we use these verses as an apologetic for our standard, the church's standard for the family. But this text isn't in here, and Paul didn't intend it to be simply a competing worldview. It's, it's a portrait of how households that claim Christ must conduct themselves if Jesus is Lord. It's aimed at Christians, and Christians need to actually take it in first. We actually need to imbibe it, submit to it, before we start worrying about what this says about the world around us. It's compelling because it elevates the Lord Jesus Christ and says if Jesus is supreme, if Jesus really did do what he said that he did for you and you're saved, then this is what your life is to look like in relationships and in the household. So if you haven't already, please open your Bibles to Colossians chapter three. And we're gonna be considering verse 18 of Colossians three through chapter four, verse one. But we're going to take an extended introduction before we get there because I want you to see what I've been compelled by in understanding this text and that is how it's connected with all that goes before, namely our position as Christians in the Lord Jesus. And so that we better understand the thrust of these verses we're familiar with and how ultimately the Holy Spirit intends us to be motivated to carry them out we're gonna spend some time looking at how Paul builds into these commands. In this short epistle, Paul, as, as you may know, is principally concerned with the supremacy of Jesus. The, the book of Colossians was written to exalt Christ, to show that Jesus is above everything, he's in everything, he's the point of everything. He is truly preeminent. Starting in verse 15 of Colossians 1, familiar words, Paul says, he, referring to the son through whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him, and for him, he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is also head of the body, the church, and he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him, and through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Through him, I say, whether things on earth 
or things in heaven. Christ's identity makes him supreme. He is God dwelling in bodily form. He has first place in everything. The point of everything is him. Moving over into chapter two, he then uses that again to show that we're not to be taken captive by worldly philosophies. And notice the reasons why. Verse eight of chapter two, see to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world rather than according to Christ. And then Paul's gonna go on to explain why for in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. And now he begins to address Christians and their position. And he says, and in him, in Christ, you have been made complete. And he is the head over all rule and authority. And in him, you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands in the removal of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised up with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us which was hostile to us and he has taken it out of the way having nailed it to the cross. Paul makes clear the position there of the believer in Christ buried with him in baptism and then raised up through faith formerly dead in transgressions now alive together with him having been forgiven. That's the spiritual biography of everyone who is truly in Christ. So as Paul moves into chapter three and he begins to turn the hinge a little bit to the more practical instructions that flow out of the theology before that, he has some transitional verses at the beginning of chapter three. He says, therefore, verse one, if you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. Chapter 3 begins to lay out the paradigm for Christian life that many of you have heard before. Sometimes it's said that the indicatives precede the imperatives. That is the the objective realities of who Christians are in Christ precede the subjective realities of how we're to live that out. Maybe said a different way, your position in the Lord Jesus motivates your practice of obedience. What you are to do is based on what God has done. Who you are in Christ is motivation for what you do for Christ. It's essentially be who you are. And so at the beginning of chapter three, Paul lays out the who you are. It starts with the command, seek the things above, and really it's because you've been raised up with Christ. Like for any believer, if is a certainty. You have been raised up with Christ. You have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And so that's a, a short summary there in those four verses of the wonderful position of believers who have union with the Lord Jesus. That's a position. Verses three and four are dones. These are completes. This is what God has done in the life of a believer. You did die if you're in Christ. You died with him and your life is hidden with him. They're dones. And so because of those things, because of that position, because of who you are in the Lord Jesus, ultimately because of what he's accomplished, then Paul looks at at uh, the Christian life and starts in verse five and says, therefore, we know this, similar, we heard Rick preach it in Romans 12, the therefore that hinges on all the doctrine that came before and all the position. How then shall we live? If we've died with Christ, we've been raised up with him, how does that matter in everyday life? So verses five through 17 of chapter three give the practical instructions for this new life in Christ. And the therefore is there to show that all of these things are the result 
and are to be motivated by the new life that the believer has. Look at chapter three with me, starting in verse five. Therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. For it is because of these things that the wrath of God will come upon the sons of disobedience. And in them you also once walked when you were living in them. But now you also put them all aside, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and abusive speech from your mouth. Paul says, because you've died and your life is hidden with Christ, cast off these things. And in the middle, he references the old life, the old man. You once walked in them. You were once actively living in them. Those are past tense on purpose, okay? Not that no one ever struggles with that, but positionally he says, look, you've, that's done. You've died, now you've been enabled, cast it off, cast off sin like a pair of dirty clothes. Change your clothes. Verse nine, do not lie to one another since you laid aside the old self with, with its evil practices. That's positional language, the old self. The old self was set aside at salvation. He says, and you've put on the new self who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. Positionally, all Christians are the new self and are in process of being renewed. So again, these are positional realities, he says. So because you've set aside the old and you've been made new and you're being renewed, cast off these bad things and now he's gonna say put on these good things. Verse 12, so as those who have been chosen of God, notice the the motivation there again. Again, he focuses on what God has done before giving the commands, okay? As those who God has chosen in love, he says, Holy and beloved, that's referring to Christians who were chosen in God, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another, forgiving each other, whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. Beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Whatever you do, in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. Because there's been a renewal, because there's been a positional change, because Christians have new life, they're to walk in accordance with the commands of Scripture in submission to the Lord Jesus. So he gives all the details, the attitudes, the behaviors of what that looks like, what the characteristics that are to be put on for a Christian. But the motivation is what God has already accomplished for you in Christ Jesus. The renewal precedes the commands. So he says, because you've been made new, live this way. Be what you are. To say it another way, maybe more striking, when we don't live this way, practically speaking, we're denying the renewal that the Lord, through Paul, says is taking place. If you've died with Christ, then live this way, is what he says. So he compels us to virtuous, godly behavior because you've already been called by God, because you've already been made alive in Christ. And then verse 17 provides that all-inclusive exhortation. that bring, It brings everything under the lordship of Christ. Everything. Anything you're gonna set your heart to do, word or deed, do it all for Jesus. Do it all giving thanks through him. All aspects of the Christian life are to be governed by Jesus. And so with all of that in mind, then he goes from general specifications for how to live our lives, and he drills in to more specific, and that's where we get to the commands for the household. 
They aren't just laid out there in isolation. They aren't laid out there like, this is just how it is. They're laid out there because of who you are in Christ. Paul says, live this way. Husbands, wives, children, fathers, employers, employees. And it's so important to see that connection. The logic of Paul's commands is compelling. We're often distracted by wrong motivations. And then we get frustrated when we fail and we're bucking against them. We, we can't do it. Paul says, set your mind on the things above. Aim your mind at Christ as the basis for obedience in your life. And walk forward in faith knowing that you can do these things because of what God has already done. And that includes the way that we're to live in relationship in the household. A couple clarifications about these, these verses. Remember I said it's an extended introduction. So keep extending it for just a few more moments here. These verses, verses 18 through chapter four, verse one, in particular, verses 18 through 21, are not, they are not a call to return to the so-called traditional family. They're not a call to return to the glory days of Ward and June Cleaver. They're not the Republican or conservative view of the family. That's not why they're in your Bible. This passage is not about grassroots family values. This passage is about what the family that is in submission to the Lord Jesus looks like. Plain and simple. That's such an important clarification. The concern of God's word here is that men and women in union with Christ, Christians, would live this way. And that their family relationships and their relationships in, by extended application, workplace relationships, that those would function in accordance with the union that we all have in Jesus. If we're wrestling with the roles and expectations of God that we see here, the answer isn't, well, that's just the way it is. We do this, this is how the family is to operate. These are the roles simply because that's just the way it ought to be. That's, a, that's a, an anemic motivation. The motivation is because the Lord Jesus said, you've died with, with me and you've been raised up with me. You're in union with me and this is the way I want you to conduct yourself. That is an, an infinitely different motivation than a conservative worldview. Paul gives us Christ and all he's accomplished as the motivation for how we're to live. And in particular in verses 18 and following in household relationships. It's not one of many options. It's not one more conservative worldview. And, you know, as we become more enlightened and liberal worldviews start to leak in a little bit, we get to choose whatever works for our family. No, Paul connects it directly to new life in Christ. To deny these things is to deny the position that you say you have if you're a child of God. Second clarification is that there can be a tendency to, to view these commands, to view family and gender roles and other things that the scriptures talk about and immediately see it, as I mentioned a minute ago, as an apologetic against the culture that we're battling with. And we miss its primary focus. You think about this text for a little while, and I encourage you to do this, but the conclusion is fairly obvious if we understand Scripture, and that is this. The biggest threat, the biggest threat to my marriage is not progressive culture or the egalitarian agenda down the street at a liberal church. The biggest threat to my marriage is me. And the biggest threat to your marriage and your family relationships is you. And we need to be reminded of that because it's too easy to listen to voices telling us how we need to build up ourselves against the war that is out there, the secular agenda, and forget that you have a responsibility in these things first and foremost before you're worried about whether or not the world thinks a Christian perspective on family is, is adequate. You need to live this. I need to live this. We need to come to recognition that, that our sinful tendencies are a bigger threat to our families, to our relationships, to our workplace relationships than the world. These verses were written for Christians. 
And Paul says that you can do these things because you've been made alive in Christ. We ask, men, what good is it to rail against rampant feminism in our culture if you're failing miserably to love your wife at home? It's fruitless. That doesn't please Christ. Well, ladies, what good is it to rail against the push to take mothers out of the home and into the workplace while failing to submit and honor your husband in the home? It's fruitless. Paul wrote this letter to a church and he's provided a singular motivation for our obedience. It's Christ. And so we need to hear the exhortation in these verses, the commands for our own hearts at Mission Road Bible Church. We need to say, this is what I need to do. I need to submit myself to the Lord Jesus and his commands here before I'm worried about whether or not the world agrees with me and before I worry about the culture war. I'm not suggesting that these verses don't inform the way we see the world around us. They do. But if we look from here out there first instead of in here, then we've missed the point of Paul's commands. Paul says you're in Christ and this is how you're to live. So with those clarifications in mind, we'll look at six role-specific exhortations that direct the Christian household. It's very simple, six role-specific exhortations that direct the Christian household. These are specific instructions from the Apostle Paul that bring forward the lordship emphasis from the preceding verses. Remember, right before verse 18 comes verse 17. Do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. And then he launches into the instruction. Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. Wives, be subject to your husbands, as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be embittered against them. Children, be obedient to your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing to the Lord. Fathers, Do not exasperate your children so that they will not lose heart. Slaves, in all things obey those who are your masters on earth, not with external service as those who merely please men, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. It is the Lord Christ whom you serve. For he who does wrong will receive the consequences of the wrong which he has done, and that without partiality. Masters, grant to your slaves justice and fairness, knowing that you too have a master in heaven. These verses are Christ's desires for marriage, for parenting, for employers and employees. And if we borrow Paul's analogy from the preceding verses in chapter three of the spiritual wardrobe, the the things we're to put on, we could say that these verses are the, the customized uniform for each role in the household. These are the tailored garments that the Lord Jesus wants you to put on as you strive to serve Christ in your God ordained station. If your job is what he's laid out here, then the way that he's told you to carry out your job or the uniform that you're to wear are these things that he's laid out for us to do. And the structure is very straightforward. He gives six different roles that were in the first century household. And those roles are then grouped into pairs. You have wives and husbands, children and fathers, slaves and masters. There's two-way relationships in each of those. And he addresses each station individually. And one important implication from that is this. Look, if one half of the station isn't obeying, it doesn't mean that the other half doesn't have to obey. These are individual commands to each role. A wife is not free to lead an unloving husband. A husband is not free to be unloving and bitter toward an unsubmissive wife. A child is not free to disobey an exasperating parent and a father is not free to exasperate a disobedient child. An employee is not free to be lazy for an ungodly employer, and an employer is not free to be unjust to a lazy employee. Each role is given its proper duty and service to the Lord. And the beauty of these instructions is is that there's great harmony and fellowship when they are all actually being carried out because all roles are giving. All roles are giving of self. So the first exhortation is to wives. Wives, be subject to your husbands. 
as is fitting in the Lord. The Christ-honoring duty prescribed for wives is submission. Submission. Submission means, the terminology here means yielding to the will or authority of another. And Paul's exhortation is addressed to the wife and not the husband. And I know that that's obvious, but it isn't always obvious in the way that we seek to obey these things. This is something that a wife is commanded to do, men, not something that you are commanded to do for her. And that's very important. Notice it says, wives be subject to your husbands, not men bring your wife into subjection. Do you see the difference? It's a massive difference. Submission is the voluntary voluntary yielding of one's will to the other. That's what Paul says wives are to do. His charge is to the wife. A wife is to willingly, in obedience to the Lord, yield her will and submission to her husband's leadership. And that call to submit is in perfect harmony with all the other teaching in the New Testament on the marriage relationship. I say that Paul wasn't addressing a certain group of unruly individuals in the church. This wasn't specific to to Colossae. You look at Ephesians 5, Titus 2, 1 Peter 3, all similarly speak of the wife's duty as one of submission. And so we often ask, does that imply inferiority? Does that imply less value? Does that imply less intrinsic worth than men? And the answer is unequivocally no. The answer, or the issue here, is role and function in marriage. And you know this well. It's not identity in Christ, okay? It's not identity in Christ. And Paul isn't asking wives in this setting to do anything different than he asks every Christian to do in the Christian life. Humility and deference are prescribed attitudes for believers throughout the scriptures. And the matter of one's identity in the Lord Jesus or worth or intrinsic worth as a person is never questioned in light of those commands. Ephesians 5.21 speaks of mutual submission in the church. 1 Peter 2 and Romans 13.1 call Christians to submit to governing authorities. We don't read those and say, well, does that mean I'm, I have less value than the people that are ruling? We don't even ask that question about those contexts. All Christians are called to submit to and respect the elders who lead them in the local church. Not because those who aren't elders are less valuable or inferior or have less standing than Christ. It's simply a function, a role. We don't need to look any further than the supreme example of the Lord Jesus himself who subjected himself to the Father in obedience even unto death. And we don't debate whether he compromised his equality with God the Father. That would mess up our entire Trinitarian theology. But we read that he submitted himself in obedience to God, even unto death, even death on a cross. So the distinction between leadership and subordination has no bearing on spiritual value. It's simply a matter of the God-ordained role. And to make clear that this isn't some sort of first century thing, the motivation that Paul gets at in verse 18 is clear, as is fitting in the Lord. As is fitting in the Lord. He just (laughs) strikes through any questions we have about whether or not this applies, and he elevates the motivation to the very top, and he says it's appropriate and proper for one who is a Christian who identifies with the Lord as a wife to be subject to her husband. So it's not cultural sensitivities. It's not a conservative worldview against a liberal worldview. It's Jesus. That's the reason. As is fitting in the Lord, this is what pleases Christ. The sister passage in Ephesians 5 adds a little clarity and scope. Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church he himself being the savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. You think of what an exalted calling that role is and and picture of the church. A wife, it's a mission to her husband, is a picture, a portrait of the church and submission of Lord Jesus. Shows the watching world that submission. 
And we hear these commands and look, we're not gonna go in and try to apply or make implications for every scenario. Some of them are just self-explanatory and, and some of them need to be discussed and sought through and worked through and prayed through. Paul simply says, be subject to your husbands and he doesn't give any more explanation. One author's helpful definition says this, submission is the divine calling of a wife to honor and affirm her husband's leadership and help carry it through according to her gifts. That's helpful. It's a helpful definition to help us get a little bit of a picture of what that looks like. But at the end of the day, whatever the circumstances, whatever the scenario, the command is to voluntarily submit your will to the will of your husband. And man, I just wanna say before we move on, the obedience called for in verse 18 is not a personality trait. It's not a personality trait. It's not natural. This is a command, just like any other command in scripture. And Paul connects the motivation for obeying to new life in Christ. We can potentially save ourselves a lot of difficulty and a lot of sin by recognizing this about our wives. Our wives require the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ to kill their sinful desire and to obey him by submitting to the likes of us. So we should ask ourselves regularly, what are we doing to aid that? Are we the type of people we would want to submit to? It's an important question. We can say tongue in cheek, I feel sorry for my wife that she has to submit to me. But really, what are you doing to address that? What are we doing as men to to make the decision, to make the, the, the path of obedience that our wives have to submit an, an easier path. If they have to willingly, voluntarily submit their wills to us, are we making that harder because of our own sin? And wives, the motivation in this verse because you have been rescued from the domain of darkness and transferred to the kingdom of God's beloved son, then pursue the Lord in submission to your husband for the pleasure of Jesus. That's the idea. And the second exhortation turns to husbands. And we'll pick up speed as we go. But Paul's exhortation to husbands includes two prescriptions, one positive and one negative. From the positive side, the Christ-honoring duty that a husband is called to is love. And at first glance, it's like this is what gives, okay? A wife has just been told to voluntarily subject her will to the will of another individual, another sinful individual, and all husbands have to do is love their wives. If we think like that, it just reveals that we've imbibed a very worldly view of love. This is not, wives, subject yourself to your husband. Husbands, feel warm and fuzzy romantic feelings about your wife. It's it's much deeper than that. Much harder. Much more challenging than that. Much more contrary to our flesh than that. The call is for the husband to give himself sacrificially in the care of his wife, unconditionally. Unconditionally. Love is volitional, it's not a matter of feelings. And this is a command, this is an obligation, a duty. The man's, the husband's duty is to love his wife. And so we may ask like we did of submission, what what does that look like, what does that mean? Well, much, too much has been made of the terminology. The, The terminology for love in the New Testament aren't technical terms that stand on their own isolated from context. But if we look at the scriptures and we see the way that God reveals his love, that's how we understand how men are to love their wives. It is a sacrificial love, but we know that because the terminology used is used in many other places that define love for us as God defines it. These are just a few examples, men, of the call. This is what love, this is what biblical God-honoring love in submission to Christ looks like. We see God as a one who initiates love when it's undeserved. God initiates love when it's undeserved. Ephesians 2, 4 and 5, but God being rich in mercy 
because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. God loved us when we were enemies, completely undeserving. God also loves even when his love is not returned. God loves even when his love is not returned. It's not reciprocated. Think of God's love for the nation of Israel as illustrated by Hosea as he is called to go out and marry a harlot who will run from him and be unfaithful to him as a demonstration of God's unconditional love for the people of Israel. That's love. That's self-sacrificing love. In human terms, I can't think of a more gut-wrenching picture than what is portrayed there by God through his prophet of a faithful, loving husband who is continually abandoned by an adulterous wife. Yet God keeps loving his adulterous wife. It's unconditional. God's love is self-sacrificing, and we see that ultimately in the passage that you probably all have in your mind, even as I read the one from Colossians, and that's in Ephesians, where it says, husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. The standard is infinite. The standard of sacrifice is infinite. When does my love run out? When may a husband say, don't have to love anymore? Never. Never. Christ sacrificed himself completely, utterly for the church. And that's the call. That's the infinite standard by which a husband's love is measured. And so we read the verses and think that husbands get off easy. We need to look no further than what Christ did to save the souls of those who would believe. Think about his sacrifice, and that's the picture that Paul says, this is what a husband's love is to look like. This is the measure of a husband's sacrifice. You can read Paul's description of love in 1 Corinthians 13, and men, if you're married, I encourage you to read that with your relationship with your wife in mind and ask yourself at the end, do I love my wife? Do I really love my wife? From the negative side, so Paul positively says, men, love your wives. And then he gives a negative command. Do not be embittered against them. Do not be embittered against them. The idea is one of of being harsh. It's harshness. And it seems in context to be an abuse of the authority that God has bestowed on husbands. To be bitter or harsh towards your wife, creating sort of a tyrannical type environment in the home. You're a tyrant. Be unceasing to man's, failing to understand your wife's weaknesses, being impossible to please. None of those things exemplify sacrificial love. It could even be harsh in an attempt to subdue a wife that's struggling to submit. But we just, we just looked at that. It's the wife's job to submit, not the man's job to subject her. Men, we're not commanded to rule over our wives. We're commanded to love them and to not be embittered toward them. My meditation on this text, it's yelling submit louder than your wife is yelling no is not what a man is called to. That's not the role in the Christian home. That's not the role of leadership. And that won't bring us one step closer to God's design for marriage or a relationship that pleases Christ. Love is not harsh, it's not bitter, and the husband seeking to love his wife will self-sacrificially be wary of bitterness harbored in the heart and will give himself unconditionally for his wife. Verse 20 brings us to children. Children, be obedient to your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing to the Lord. Now, the fact that Paul's addressing children directly in this letter means that they could hear it when it was read and they could understand it. So it tells us a little bit about who he's addressing. Doesn't mean we shouldn't tell our younger children this, but he's addressing children that could understand and, and listen and obey. He expected them to understand not only the command, but also the motivation. And he doesn't give any caveats about whether children are regenerate or not. It's very interesting. He just says, children, obey your parents, which is pleasing in the Lord. 
We don't have to tie ourselves in knots speculating. Well, does this only mean children who've made a profession of faith? And if I have unbelieving children, Paul just says, children, be obedient to your parents. It's a command to them. They're to recognize their God-given authority and honor Christ, honor God by honoring the parents. It's funny, the extent of obedience is in all things. And this is where students, as (laughs) Adam, I'm sure has addressed, the question comes, often not serious, but, well, what if a parent commands a child to sin? Well, Paul didn't miss anything. This isn't like a, a loophole in Paul's argument. He's addressing Christian family, the Christian household, and the expectation would be that fathers would not be asking their children to sin. Of course, if a parent requires a child to sin, they can't do that. But students, don't use that as an excuse Be warned. Be very, very, very careful with that, especially if your parents are believers. Paul's exhortation to children includes a a Christ-focused motivation, just like all of these. It's very interesting. He says, obey because it pleases the Lord, which is a way better motivation than because I said so. It, It lifts it off of fickle, frail parents that sometimes are doing things well in the grace of Christ and sometimes aren't. It says obedience is pleasing to God Almighty. That's to be the motivation. And parents, we can have this motivation and keep it before our children. They're to obey in the sphere of lordship and it's well-pleasing to Christ when they honor and obey their parents. Obedient children bring a smile to the face of the creator of the universe. That should be very, very powerful motivation for children, but also for parents in the way that we're bringing them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Verse 21, fathers, do not exasperate your children so that they will not lose heart. So Paul's fourth exhortation directs the leader of the Christian home, the father, and parenting is in view, but the father's addressed, which would be in keeping with the instruction for the family where the father is shown to lead the home. And it's given from the negative perspective. The the father is told, don't exasperate your kids. And what does that mean? Well, it's a prohibition against irritating, provoking, angering your children as you raise them, as you lead them. And it doesn't imply that a father is supposed to be a doormat or walk around on eggshells trying to not disturb children so that they won't be incited to irrational anger. The father's authority is in view. The father as the leader has the authority in the home and carrying out the duties that he's been given to carry out, including parenting, should not be done in a way that unnecessarily irritates or provokes them. When I was in youth ministry at another church some seven or eight years ago, I vividly recall, and this was an unfortunate pattern, a particular family with two sons who were very close in age and specifically in athletic events, not you know, high school sports games, but just pickup games on the side, just fun fellowship games. The father would consistently provoke the younger. He was nagging him about his every, I mean, every move. The kid couldn't walk without a condescending comment. Meanwhile, the older brother was left with no comment whatsoever that was negative. And I mean, you just could see this young man melt. First he would get angry and then just the wind completely out of his sails. And that's what's in view here. Paul says, don't exasperate them so that they will not lose heart. So that they will not lose heart. Irritating parenting, exacting parenting that is unreasonable, angering parenting, it's prohibited because it causes children to become despondent, spiritless, robbed of life. That's the idea. Paul says, that's not the way to parent. That's not the way to lead, fathers. He says, you need to lead them without exasperating them. And then he turns his attention to slaves and masters. Slaves and masters, it's an interesting note. He gives the most attention to slaves. And this is somewhat conjecture, but the idea is perhaps, you know the book Philemon, the short letter that comes right after this, dealt with a runaway slave named Onesimus. There were connections to Colossae and the church at Colossae. And so some think that Paul gave this extended treatment 
towards slaves because of the situation he was going to be dealing with with Philemon. And in particular, the expectation for restoration on both of their parts and for Onesimus to go back to his master. So it's interesting to think about he gave so much room to this. In the first century, slaves would have been a normal part of the household. Would have been a normal part of the household. That's why this is considered the household code and includes these verses. There may be, you know, some say 60 million slaves in the Roman Empire. It was a normal part of first century life. We're not going to take an extended look at slavery, but suffice to say, we, we sort of need to get the pre-Civil War Confederate South version out of our heads. Shouldn't automatically think that when we view this. Paul's addressing the Christian household, slaves and masters would have been a part of that household, and so he, he says, you have obligation under Christ as well. He says, slaves in all things, obey those who are your masters on earth. And then he starts telling them how, not simply with external service, not, a, not pleasing to the eye only, not only when the boss is watching, but with sincerity of heart. Again, look at the motivation, fearing the Lord. Then it comes again, verse 23. Do your work heartily as for the Lord. Verse 24, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. It is the Lord Christ whom you serve. Could Paul have make that any more clear where the motivation for this is? It's Jesus. It's Jesus. After addressing slaves, he comes to masters. Masters, grant to your slaves justice and fairness, knowing that you too have a master in heaven. So both sides of the equation are addressed. And by extended application, we could say, look, this matters for employers and employees today. Certainly different employers and employees outside the household, not explicitly related to the slave-master relationship, but there's implications. If you're an employee, verses 22 through 25 apply to you. You have a master, you have a boss, and you need to work for the Lord Jesus in how you work for your master. And those of you who have employees, if you're in Christ, you're to carry out your leadership in that endeavor with justice and fairness, with the same motivation, because you have a boss in heaven. That's the idea. And so these do apply in those circumstances. They do apply in those situations. And it should affect how we go about our work and it should affect how we treat our employees. And at the end of the day, all of these relationships, no matter which role you play in them, they all point to Jesus as the motivation for why to conduct yourself in the way that's prescribed. We can't miss that. We can't absolutely not miss that. If you're in Christ, these things are expected of you. Paul connects it to your position in Jesus. We don't have an option we simply don't have an option to look at this and say, eh, that's kind of an old-fashioned view of life. Paul doesn't give that as an, op- as an option. This is the view of life for those who are raised up with Christ, who positionally have put on the new self because the old self has been put to death. So what does a household look like when all members are submitted to the supremacy of Jesus? All are giving All are giving. The wife is yielding her will and submission. The husband is yielding his life in sacrificial love. The child is giving himself in obedience. The father is giving patient, consistent instruction. The employee is rendering submission and service. The employer is giving justice and equity. It's a beautiful picture. What about when it doesn't look like this? What about when it's messy? What about when a spouse is in a pattern of consistent sin or only one part of one of these relationships is willing to do it Christ's way? What then? It's where we point to the pivotal role of faith in the life of the Christian. The pivotal role of faith in the life of a Christian. The yielding of our wills to the truth of Scripture and trusting ourselves to the Lord Jesus in obedience. That's the obedience of faith. A wife who submits to an unloving husband, not because he deserves it, but because she trusts by faith that the Lord's commands are best and that Jesus is worthy of obedience. Or a husband 
who continues to sacrificially love an unsubmissive wife, not because she has earned his love, but because he trusts by faith, by faith that the Lord's commands are best and that Jesus is worthy of obedience. The idea is this, why, why in those messy situations would you pursue obedience? And our letter says, because if you've been raised up with Christ, you're to keep seeking the things above where Christ is. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Perhaps in our day in, day out interactions in these relationships, we simply need to ask this more. Does the way I'm treating my spouse, my parent, my child, my boss, my employee, does the way I'm interacting with them bring pleasure to Jesus? Simple question. Does the way I'm treating my spouse, my husband or my wife, the way I'm treating my child, if you're a child, is the way I'm interacting with my parent, if you're an employee, the way I'm treating my boss, if you're an employer, is the way I'm treating my employees. Does that bring pleasure to Jesus? Do our actions in our relationships reveal what Paul says about our position? Does the way we conduct ourselves in these relationships reveal that we have died with Christ and we've been raised up with him? Is our position evident in our practice? These roles aren't natural for anyone, but the Lord Jesus has not asked more of his children than he's prepared to give the grace to walk in. Think of, and this is convicting for me as well, trust me, think of the Lord's honor at a prayer from a husband to, that the Lord would give him the grace to love his wife better more sacrificially, in a way that honors Jesus. Or a wife praying, asking the Lord to give her the strength and the grace to submit her will to the will of her husband. Children asking for help in in obeying their parents. Employers asking for the Lord's grace that they would be just and fair to their employees and it can go on and on and on. The Lord would be pleased with those prayers because this is all about him. These commands are all about him. These relationships and what we're to do in them is all about him. 